When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, September 12th. This weekend, we are looking back at an interview that I conducted way back in the beginning of 2019. It certainly seems like a world away from where we are today, but I thought it made a ton of sense to rebroadcast this interview with Cal Newport. He is an author. He is an academic. His first book was called Deep Work, and this is a book that actually led to his book that I was interviewing him about, Digital Minimalism. Really, it's a question of how can we navigate, certainly as many of us remain working from home, the question about how we can navigate our tech-saturated world is really in the forefront. So in this first part of our interview, we are talking about the cesspool that is social media, and what led to the digital minimalism movement. What is the best financial or career decision you've ever made? Oh, that's interesting. Well, probably the best career decision was all the way back as an undergrad. I was a computer science major and was trying to figure out, do I want to go into industry? So I had a job offer from Microsoft, so stock and good salary. Or do I want to go to grad school? Mm. Very little salary, no stock options. But the idea I had was if I go to grad school, I will have enough flexibility that I can keep writing books ah. while continuing to, to con- do my computer science education. That's interesting because there was also a certain amount of you could sort of have a nice steady stream of income if you kind of made it through and got on a tenure track, but also indulge your creative side and be really have have excitement around that and, and yeah. find your passion. That's awesome. Yeah, it worked out well. And also it gives you this balance. So if let's say the academic life is grinding you down, you can take some refuge in the writing. And then if you go through a stage when the writing's grinding you down, you can take some refuge in the academic. And I could bounce back and forth and sort of self-modulate it. That's great. <laughs> it worked. I first became familiar with you when you wrote a book called Deep Work, and it kind of blew my mind. So can you just outline a little bit of the thesis of Deep Work, and then maybe we can talk about how that may have led to your current new book, Digital Minimalism? Well, they're definitely connected. So Deep Work, in subsets was talking about some of the unexpected consequences of technology in the workplace. And the argument it was making is that we are undervaluing focus. So we're undervaluing what you get out sustained concentration. And we were overvaluing convenience of, let's say, flexible communication or accessibility. And so the argument was, if you're an individual or organization that cultivates the ability to focus intensely during work, you would have this huge competitive advantage because almost no one else was doing it. When you started writing that, what year was that about? 
Probably 2014 is when I started to get serious in the research for that. So already we had the iPhone out for seven years. We have lots of different interruptions. But the focus part of that, we've always been interrupted by different things in our lives. I mean, email or the phone way back when. So what is it that you prescribe in deep work that you have found has, has really yielded great upside for people who need to focus? Well, even the vocabulary was a big deal for a lot of people. The shallow work, which is the emails and the meetings and the putting together the PowerPoint slides, is different than the deep work, which is the sustained concentration. And that when you make the claim that it's the deep work that actually moves the needle, that's what actually is going to push you ahead in your career or going to raise the profit of the company, while the shallow work is just what keeps the lights on. It's the logistical work that keeps things going. And noting that those are two different things. So it's not just enough to say, I'm busy or that I I work really hard, I was in the office all day, that you actually have to start thinking what type of work I'm doing. Just adding those terms to the efforts that people did in the office, I think really helped people rethink, okay, what am I actually doing here? Mm -hmm. Frenzy is not enough. You know, the actual type of activity matters and focus is is producing the value. And what's interesting, I just interviewed Daniel Pink, who wrote a book called When, and he talks about doing deep work at specific periods in the day, which may be different for every individual. Did you find that also? It is different. But what they share in common is a commitment to having actual systems for how they schedule it and rituals surrounding the actual deep work, because it's actually really difficult. It's, it's a big ask of the human brain to say, I want to give sustained attention, especially to something that's abstract or symbolic. Like this, is, this is a big ask. It's not something that you're going to feel like you're in the mood to do. Uh, it's not something that you easily slip into. So serious deep workers have these scheduling philosophies. This is when I do my deep work. Could be different between what you do or I do, right. but it's clear that they have these rituals that surround it. Okay, how do I coerce my brain into actually entering this mode of sustained concentration on something abstract. So that is really common. And what do you do to drown out everything else? So you don't put your email on, you turn off your phone. What else? Yeah, well, it's it's key in the definition of deep work that any distraction means it's no longer deep work. So even the quick glances only every 15 minutes still doesn't count. If you're looking at an inbox at all, if you're glancing at a phone at all, uh, it doesn't count. So that's the hard and fast rule we have for deep work is that it has to have zero distractions. Your attention needs to be on the one thing and only that one thing to get into your sustained concentration. Because we have a lot of research that shows what kills you in concentration uh, is not multitasking. It's the context switching. So even if you just context switch for a minute to look at an inbox, you're going to pay a cognitive price for a long time after that. And so we got the message maybe around 2010 or so that pure multitasking doesn't work. So if I'm on the phone and answering email while trying to write something difficult, I'm not doing any of them well. The subtle issue, though, is people now think they're single tasking because they only have, let's say, Microsoft Word open. For the most part, they're only working on that one hard thing, but they're doing these quick checks every 10 or 15 minutes. Right. So if I check my phone while I'm writing my manuscript, I am really losing ground in that endeavor of deep work. After you put the phone away, you continue to lose ground. How long? Well, at least 10 to 15 minutes. Wow. Yeah. And most, I would say most knowledge workers go less than 10 to 15 minutes in between quick checks. And so they think they're single tasking because Literally speaking, they're not doing these things at the same time, except for in those quick moments that they're checking. Mm. But the attention residue cost, which is the term that comes out of the psychology literature, the attention residue, when you come back to the primary task, lasts for a while. It reduces your cognitive output. And so that's why deep workers are so adamant 
that there can't be a single glance. And if you glance, the whole session no longer counts as deep work. What? Yeah. The whole thing? The whole thing. Not even like that first half hour where you blew it? No. If you've glanced in the last half hour, it doesn't count. (laughs) Okay. So let's use me as an example. Why not? I wake up very early. So I have to check my email because I'm in news, right? So I have to make sure nobody needs me to come on set or do anything. I do that very quickly. And then... Should I put an auto reply on my email at that point and basically say I will not be checking email for the next two hours, or some, or develop a, a a ritual that the people who need to reach you know? I mean, something that's very common is you have some sort of emergency procedure. So mm-hmm. okay, here's my phone. Here's my phone number. The people you work with know if there's something breaking, you could call this phone right. or, or send a text message. Right. Otherwise, this is my writing time, uh, and then I'll be back on it at whatever, right? Expectations are set. And people adjust pretty clearly. It turns out in the workplace that uh, predictability is more important than accessibility, and we often get that wrong. What people need to know is, I know how and when I can reach you and how that system works is more important than actually having 24 access to you. Do you think that autoresponder actually works or doesn't work? Uh, I think it could be useful, um, because it does give information about accessibility. I think in general, what I call communication rules are useful, which is having clarity. Mm. So for example, I don't have an autoresponder as an author, but I have a pretty clear set of communication rules on my website. Here's four different addresses. They each have different purposes. So use this address for this, that address for this. Here are the expectations about whether or not you should expect to hear from me or whether or not I'll read it. And so it's clarity. Mm-hmm. And you would worry, and a lot of writers, for example, what might worry, well, that's going to upset my readers. But they don't seem that upset. Actually, what's more upsetting to readers is if you don't have that clarity. Say, so, I don't know, I see an email address. And so I and had, you didn't an, ex- respond I had an expectation, an implicit expectation that you were going to respond that mm-hmm. you did it. If you instead say, here's my address, I love to get XYZ, but I probably won't respond, people are okay. It's like, great, right. I got it. I didn't expect a response, and so I'm not unhappy. And then when you do respond, when you see a good lead or something, people are way more happy than they would have been. Oh, they don't take it for granted. That is great. <laughs> so this work, Deep Work, was really popular. And what year was that published? 2016. 16. And here you are already with another new book out. And so basically, you've lapped me six times. Isn't this your sixth book? Sixth book, yeah. And you now have lapped me six times, and you are a lot younger than I am. So what do I have to show for myself? Not a lot, I guess. Huh? Well, see, once you start deep working, though, we'll be you back think? here next year. Who You'll knows? Be in book four. Yeah. All right. There you go. <laughs> Talk about what led you to digital minimalism, choosing a focused life. So there's your favorite word, focus, yep. in a noisy world. The readers of deep work were actually a big part of the initial push into this topic. So I was out there on the road. I was talking about it. This is a book about the workplace. Deep Work was about the workplace. And readers would come up to me and say, okay, maybe I buy this premise about what's going on in the workplace, but the real issue, I mean, the one that's literally keeping me up at night, is the impact of new technologies in my personal life. Mm-hmm. And there's something interesting. really interesting going on there, but also really different than what's happening in the workplace. In the workplace, we're talking about expectations with bosses. We're talking about email. We're talking about Slack. What was happening to people's personal lives was actually much different. And I had been noticing, because I'd written about these topics for a while, but I'd been noticing around that time, 2016, early 2017, that there'd been a shift in the way that people seemed to be talking about this. Mm. This shift from the self-deprecation, like, oh, I'm on my phone all the time, isn't it crazy, into actual unease, where people were starting to get fed up. Mm. People were actually looking for changes. This is not healthy. This is not sustainable, what's happening in my personal life. This message was so strong. I was receiving it so strongly, I felt like I had no option but to actually leave the world of business and dive into this particular topic, what's happening in our personal lives with technology. And you were able to go out to your fan base 
and say, who wants to help me with this project, basically? Yeah. Talk about that uh, experiment and what it yielded. Well, so one of the things that became clear when I was working on the book is that if you're going to transition your digital personal life to something more sustainable, small tips, small changes, this wasn't going to get it done. Like Something more wholesale had to happen. I worked on a process, a 30-day process, that I thought could affect this rapid transformation, but I wanted to kick the tires on it. So I put out a note to my readers just on my email list saying, hey, is anyone willing to come along with me and do a 30-day experiment? You're going to have to step away from all the technology of personal life. It's not going to be easy. And then send me reports about it. I thought that maybe 20 or so people would agree because it's a big ask. And then over 1,600 people ended up signing up. That is like, that is a cry for help right there, isn't it? Like, not only do I want to do this, but I really need you to help me. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said it around your personal life because you make a distinction that part of this, look, you have the deep work and some of the rules and the consistency around work life, which I get. Everybody has different expectations. If you work at some big law firm. Yeah. And the client wants you. Yeah. Tough luck. Don't be a lawyer in, in this day and age if you don't want to be notified at late in the day, right? Yeah. But for your personal life, that's where you were seeing having these feelings that came out that were, I think that people understood, like, I'm sort of not like, maybe I don't, I'm not addicted. Maybe I am addicted, but I have a tendency and urge. Something is drawing me back to this device yes. and, and I can't escape it. Can you just talk a little bit about the two issues especially around social media, that draw you in. Yeah, well, in some sense, the companies went too far, and that's part of what was creating this trend where people were going from self-deprecation to unease, is they got so good at getting you to look back at the phone, because, again, that's directly the activity that generates revenue for the company. You going back to the phone, uh, using it, giving data, and allowing your data to be used to target advertisements at you, that's the business model. They got real serious about this business model around the time they started to think, how are we going to make this IPO success? So Facebook in particular innovated a lot of what's bringing us to the phone. When the IPO was coming up, they were thinking, we have to get the revenue up. They get revenue up, we have to get user engagement minutes up. They get user engagement minutes up, we have to completely re-engineer the experience of social media. And mm-hmm. we have to take it away from what is used to be, which is primarily you have a profile, other people maintain a profile, you check in on your friend's profiles, they sometimes check in on yours, and they re-engineered it to this experience where you're getting this steady stream of rewards coming at you through the app, mm-hmm. like likes. We think like is fundamental to social media. It's not. That's a feature that's much more serving the interest of the companies than it is the users. Photo auto-tagging, the, the quick comments that you could leave, the hearts on Instagram, this changed the experience of social media, the one where you have constant rewards, social approval indicators about you coming in, uh, which really led to this new relationship people had with their phones, which is this constant companion, I'm always clicking, which is different than it was before. I love the, um, the you said that the tech companies encourage behavioral addiction, intermittent positive reinforcement. That's the hearts, that's the likes, which yeah. you think should just be banned. Like everyone should stop doing that immediately. It's not a feature that was added because it made the user experience better. Those no. are features that were added because it quadrupled user engagement minutes. That's incredible. And the drive for social approval because we are social animals, right? And we do want that. Where is it that you see in the 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 iteration of where we are today in social media where you start to see the approval part of that? Well, so the big shift was instead of the static experience where maybe I read what's going on in your life or maybe someone reads about what's going on in my life, they had to figure out how we give indications that people are paying attention to you. And so if I see there's likes, 
That literally means someone liked something I was doing. So if I tell you, like, here's an envelope, and in this envelope is something that someone was thinking about you, human nature makes it almost impossible not to open that envelope. Whereas if I say, hey, in this envelope, there's something interesting or funny, you're like, oh, that's nice. Maybe I'll get to that. But if I tell you, no, no, someone said something about you. I wrote it down. It's in that envelope. You're going to have to open it. And so the social media platforms figured out pretty quickly, we have to find these indicators of social approval. Mm. We have to make the stream of social approval indicators as rich as possible because that's human psychology 101. It might be nice to see what my friend is up to, but I have to see what people are thinking about me. Oh, my God. That is what got me off of social media right there, by the way. The counts? No, the what people are yeah. like or yeah. are dislike they the, or dislike. Yeah. Because so in my case... You know, on Twitter or on not so much on Facebook, but more like on Twitter, which is a yeah. cesspool. Yeah. I don't have a thick enough skin, I guess, but I really said I need to stop this. So yep. Mark, the executive producer extraordinaire, kind of runs my social accounts and yep. he'll tell me if something I need to respond to or he'll forward something to me that is important. Yes. And he'll say to me, um, you know, this person's looking for you. They want a speaking engagement or I think your uncle's looking for you on Facebook. I am so much happier with Mark being my filter because it just hurt my feelings so much. Yeah, which, which, by the way, is the way I think news organizations should run is there should be people who engage or monitor what's going on social media on behalf of the journalists as opposed to this model that the journalists themselves should be constantly engaged in the social media. That also distracts you and it fragments your attention. It makes it very difficult to write the scripts or, or, or think through the story. And so I'm with you. I want to thank Cal Newport once again. Uh, he was very generous with his time. Hope you enjoyed that. Tomorrow, we're going to have the second part of our interview. Don't forget, if you have a financial question, just send us an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com. And as always, as we finish up this Saturday, wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing, and do something nice for somebody. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.